They were being pushed and shoved, but it was not as unpleasant as the words suggested. There were moderate pressures on all sides as people poured in behind, as though the wizards were standing chest-deep in the sea and were swaying and shifting to the slow rhythm of the tide. "'My goodness,' said the chair of indefinite studies, "'is this football? It's a bit dull, isn't it?' "'Pies were mentioned,' said the lecturer in recent runes, craning his neck. "'People are still coming in, Gov,' said Ottomy. "'But however do we see things? Depends on the shove, Gov. Usually people near the action shout out.' "'Ah, I see a pie-seller,' said the chair of indefinite studies. He took a couple of steps forward. There was a random shift and sway in the crowd, and he vanished. "'How is it now, Mr. Trev?' said Nutt, as people surged around him. "'It's like buggery, excuse my clatchian,' muttered Trev, clutching his injured arm to his coat. "'Are you sure you weren't holding an hammer?' "'No hammer, Mr. Trev. I'm sorry, but you did ask me. I know, I know. "'Where did you learn to punch like that?' "'Never learned, Mr. Trev.' I must never raise my hand to another person, but you went on so, and... I mean, you're so skinny. Long bones, Mr. Trev, long muscles. I really am very sorry. My fault, Gobbo. I didn't know your own strength. Suddenly Trev shot forward, cannoning into Nut. Where have you been, my man? said the person who had just slapped him hard in the back. We said to meet at the eel pie stall. Now the speaker looked at Nut, and his eyes narrowed. And who's this stranger who thinks he's one of us? He did not exactly glare at Nut, but there was a definite sense of a weighing in the balance, and on unfriendly scales. Trev brushed himself off, looking uncharacteristically embarrassed. "'Hi, Andy. Uh, this is Nut. He, he works for me.' "'What as a bog brush?' said Andy. There was laughter from the group behind him. Andy always got a laugh. It was the first thing you noticed, after the glint in his eye. "'And his dad is Captain of Dimwell, Gobbo.' "'Pleased to meet you, sir.' said Nut, extending a hand. "'Oh, pleased to meet you, sir,' Andy mimicked, and Trev grimaced as a calloused hand the size of a plate grasped Nut's cheese-straw fingers. "'He's got hands like a girl,' Andy observed, taking a grip. "'Mr. Trev has been telling me wonderful things about the dimmers, sir,' said Nut. Andy grunted. Trev saw his knuckles whiten with effort while Nut chattered. "'The camaraderie of the sport must be a wonderful thing.' "'Yeah, right!' Andy grunted, finally managing to pull his hand away, his face full of angry puzzlement. "'And this is my mate Maxie,' said Trev quickly, "'and this is Carter the Farter.' "'That's the uh, Fartmeister now,' said Carter. "'Yeah, right, and, and this is Jumbo. You want to watch out for him, he's a thief. Jumbo can pick a lock faster than you can pick your nose.' The said Jumbo held up a small bronze badge. "'Killed, of course,' he said. "'They nail your ears to the door, else.' "'You mean you break the law for a living?' said Nut, horrified. "'Ain't you ever heard of the Thieves' Guild?' said Andy. "'Gobbo's new,' said Trev protectively. "'Hasn't got out much. He's a goblin from the high country.' "'Coming down here, taking our jobs, yeah?' said Carter. "'Like, how often do you do Anne's turn?' said Trev. "'Well, I might want to one day.' "'Milking the cows when they come home,' said Andy. "'This got another laugh on cue.' and that was the introduction sorted out, to Nut's surprise. He'd been expecting chicken theft to be mentioned. Instead, Carter pulled a couple of tin cans out of a pocket and tossed them to Nut and Trev. "'Did a few hours unloading down the docks, didn't I?' he said defensively, as though a bit of casual labour was some kind of offence. "'This come off a boat from 4X!' Jumbo fished in his pocket again and pulled out someone else's watch. "'Game on in five minutes,' he declared. "'Let's shove, uh, if that's all right with you, Andy.' Andy nodded. 
Jumbo looked relieved. It was always important that things were all right with Andy, and Andy was still watching Nut as a cat watches an unexpectedly cheeky mouse while massaging his hand. Mr. Ottomy cleared his throat, causing his red Adam's apple to bob up and down like an indecisive sunset. Shouting in public, yes, he liked that, he was good at that. Speaking in public now, that was a different kettle of humiliation. Well, er, uh, gents, what we will have here is your actual football, what is basically about the shove, which is what you gentlemen will be doing soon. I thought we watched two groups of players vie with one another to get the ball in the opponent's goal. Could be, sir, could very much be, the Bledlow conceded. But in the streets, see, your actual supporters on both sides try and endeavour to shorten the length of the field, as it were, depending on the flow of play, so to speak. Like living walls, do you mean? said Ridcully. That style of thing, sir, yes, sir, said Ottomy loyally. What about the goals? Oh, they're allowed to move the goals too. Sorry, said Ponder. The spectators can move the goals. You have put your finger firmly on it, sir. But that's sheer anarchy. It's a mess. Some of the old boys do say the game has gone downhill, sir. That is true. Downhill, into, and out through the bottom of the world, I'd say. Good one to play with magic, though, said Dr. Hicks. Well worth a try. A word to the ways, sir, said Ottomy, with unwitting accuracy, but you'd be wearing your guts for garters if you trade it with some of the types who play these days. They take it seriously. Mr. Ottomy, I'm sure none of my blokes wear garters. Ridcully stopped and listened to Ponder Stibbons's whispered interjection, and continued, Well, possibly one, two at most, and it would be a very dull world if we were all the same. That's what I say. He looked around and shrugged. So, this is football, is it? Rather a wizened shell of a game, yes? I, for one, don't want to stand around all day in the rain while other people have all the fun. Let's go and find the ball, gentlemen. We are wizards. That must count for something. I thought we were blokes now, said the lecturer in recent rooms. Same thing, said Ridcully, straining to see over the heads of the crowd. Surely not. Well, said Ridcully, isn't a bloke someone who likes drinking with his mates and without the company of women? Anyway, I'm fed up with this. Form up behind me, nevertheless. We're going to see some football. The progress of the wizards astonished Ottomy and Nobbs, who had hitherto seen them as fluffy, plump creatures quite divorced from real life. But to get to be a senior wizard and stay there called for deep reserves of determination, viciousness, and the sugared arrogance that is the mark of every true gentleman. As in, oh, was that your foot? I'm so terribly sorry. And, of course, there was Dr. Hicks a good man to have in a tight spot, because he was, by college statute, an officially bad person, in accordance with UU's happy grasp of the inevitable. In short, every wizard knew that, whatever you did, you'd get some wizards creeping off to do weird and messy magic in some cave somewhere. A less mature organisation than UU might have taken the view that the way forward would be to hunt such renegades down, at great risk and expense. You, you, on the other hand, had given Hicks and his team a department, and a budget, and a career structure, and also the chance to go out into dark caves occasionally and throw fireballs at unofficial evil wizards. It all worked rather well, so long as nobody pointed out that the Department of Post-Mortem Communications was really, when you got right down to it, just a politer form of N-E-C-R-O-M-A-N-C-Y.
wasn't it? And so Dr. Hicks was now tolerated as a useful, if slightly irritating, member of the council, largely because he was allowed, by statute, to say some of the naughty things that other wizards would really have liked to say themselves. Someone with a widow's peak, a skull ring, a sinister staff and a black robe was expected to spread a little evil round the place, although university statute had redefined acceptable evil in this case as being inconveniences on a par with shoelaces tied together or a brief attack of groinal itch. It wasn't the most satisfactory of arrangements, but it was in the best UU tradition. Hicks occupied amiably, a niche that might otherwise be occupied by someone who really got off on the whole mouldering corpses and peeled skulls thing. Admittedly, he was always giving fellow wizards free tickets to the various amateur dramatic productions he was obsessively involved with, but on balance, they agreed, taking one thing with another, this was still better than peeled skulls. For Hicks, a crowd like this was too good to waste, not only was there a plethora of bootlaces to be expertly tied together, but there were an awful lot of pockets as well. He always had some flyers for the next production in his robe. Hicks had flatly refused to wear trousers. No self-respecting dark wizard would dream of wearing such common garb as a trouser, he declared. It totally spoiled the effect. And it wasn't the same as picking pockets. Quite the reverse. He stuffed them into any he could find. The day was all a mystery to Nut, and it stayed a mystery, becoming a little more mysterious with every passing minute. In the distance a whistle was blown, and somewhere in this moving, jostling, crushing, and in most cases drinking mob of people there was a game going on, apparently. He had to take Trev's word for it. There were oohs and ahs in the distance, and the crowd ebbed and flowed in response. Trev and his chums, who called themselves, as far as Nut could make out over the din, the Dimwell Massive Pussy, took advantage of every temporary space to move nearer and nearer to the mysterious game, holding their ground when the press went against them, and pushing hard when an eddy went their way. Push, sway, shove. And something in this spoke to Nut. It came up through the soles of his feet and the palms of his hands, and slid into his brain with a beguiling subtlety, warming him, stripping him away from himself and leaving him no more than a beating part of the living, moving thing around him. A chant came past. It had started somewhere at the other end of the game, and, whatever it had been once, it was now just four syllables of roar from hundreds of people and many gallons of beer. As it faded, it took the warm belonging feeling away with it, leaving a hole. Nut looked into the eyes of Trev. Happened you did it. Trev said. That was quick. It was, Nut began. I know. We don't talk about it, said Trev flatly. But it spoke to me without, we don't talk about it, OK? Not that sort of thing. Look, they're being pushed back. It's opening up. Let's shove. And Nut was good at shoving. Very good. Under his inexorable pressure, people slid or gently spun out of the way their hobnailed boots scraping on the stones as, short of an alternative, the owners were rolled and squeezed alongside Nut and Trev and deposited behind them, somewhat dizzy, bewildered and angry. Now, though, there was a frantic tugging at Nut's belt. Stop pushing, Trev shouted. We've left the others behind. In fact, my progress is now hindered by a peas pudding and chowder stand. I have been doing my best, Mr Trev, but it has really been slowing me down, said Nut over his shoulder. 
and also Miss Glenda. Hello, Miss Glenda. Trev glanced behind him. There was a fight going on back there, and he could hear Andy's battle cry. There was generally a fight going on around Andy, and if there wasn't, he started one. But you had to like Andy because, well, you just had to. He, Glenda was up ahead. Surely that meant that she would be there too. There was a commotion further on, and a vaguely oblong thing, wrapped now in tatters of cloth, rose up in the air and fell back, to cheers and catcalls from the crowd. Trev had been right up to the game face many times before. It was no big deal. He'd seen the ball dozens of times. But how long had Nut been pushing a pudding stall in front of him like a snowplow? Oh my, Trev thought, I've found a player. How can he do it? He looks half-starved all the time. In the absence of any way round in the press of people, Trev scrambled between Nut's legs and for a moment looked down an avenue of coat hems, boots, and, right in front of him, a pair of legs that were considerably more attractive than those of Nut. He surfaced a few inches away from the milky blue eyes of Juliet. She did not look surprised. Surprise is an instant thing, and by the time Juliet could register surprise, she generally wasn't. Glenda, on the other hand, was the kind of person who instantly whacks surprise on the meat slab of indignation and hammers it into fury, and as their gazes locked and metaphorical bluebirds cleared their throats for the big number, she appeared between them and demanded, "'What the hells were you doing down there, Trevor Likely?' The bluebirds evaporated. "'What are you doing up front here?' said Trev. It wasn't repartee, but it was the best he could do now with his heart pounding. "'We got shoved,' growled Glenda. "'You lot were shoving us!' "'Me? I never did!' said Trev indignantly. "'It was—' he hesitated. "'Nut?' Look at him standing there, all nervous and skinny, like he's never had a good meal in his life. I wouldn't believe me, and I am me. It was them behind, he said lamely. Trolls with big boots on, were they? said Glenda, her voice all vinegar. We'd be in the game if it wasn't for Mr. Nutt here, holding all back. The unfairness of this took Trev aback, but he decided to stay there rather than argue with Glenda. Nut could do no wrong in her eyes, and Trev could do no right, which he couldn't contest, but rather felt should be amended to never did any serious wrong. But there was Juliet smiling at him. When Glenda looked away to talk to Nut, she slipped something into his hand, and then turned her back on him as if nothing had happened. Trev opened his hand, heart pounding, and there was a little enamel badge in black and white, the colours of the hated enemy. It was still warm from her hand. He closed his hand quickly, and looked around to see if anyone had spotted this betrayal of all that was good and true, i.e. the good name of Dimwell. Supposing he got knocked down by a troll, and one of the lads found it on him. Supposing Andy found it on him. But it was a gift from her. He put it into his pocket, and rammed it down to the bottom. This was going to be really difficult, and Trev was not a man who liked problems in his life. The owner of the pudding stand, having enterprisingly sold a number of portions to passing trade during its journey, strolled up to Trev and offered him a bag of hot peas. "'Tough mate you got there,' he said. "'Some kind of troll, is he?' "'Not troll, a uh, goblin,' said Trev, as the sounds of the strife drew nearer. "'I thought they were little buggers.' "'This one isn't,' said Trev, wishing the man would go away. There was a sudden, localised silence, the kind of noise made by people who were holding their breath. He looked up and saw the ball for the second time in the game. There was a core of ash wood in there somewhere, then a leather skin, and finally dozens of layers of cloth for grip, and it was dropping with pinpoint inevitability towards the beautiful, dreamy head of Juliet. 
Trev dived at her without a moment's thought, dragging her under the cart as the ball thumped onto the cobbles where she had been gracing the world with her presence. Many things went through Trev's mind as the ball hit the ground. She was in his arms, even if she was complaining about getting mud on her coat. He had probably saved her life, which from a romantic point of view was money in the bank, and, oh yes, Dimmer or Dolly, if one of the hardcore posses found out about this, the next thing to go through his head would be a boot. She giggled. Shush, he managed. Not a good idea if you'd rather not know how you'd look with that beautiful hair shaved off. Trev peeped out from under the stall and attracted no attention at all. This is because Nut had picked up the ball and was turning it over and over in his hands with a frown on what was visible of, if you were kind, his face. "'Is this all it is?' he said to a bewildered Glenda. "'A most inappropriate ending to a pleasant social gathering with interesting canapes. "'Where is this wretched thing supposed to be, then?' Glenda, hypnotised by the sight, pointed a wavering finger in the general direction of down the street. "'There's a big pole painted white, well, spattered with red at the bottom.' "'Oh, yes, I see it. Well, in that case, I'll—' "'Look, will you men please stop pushing?' "'Nut added to the crowd, who were craning to see. "'But there's no way you'll ever get it there,' Glenda yelled. "'Just put it down and come away.' "'Trev heard a grunt from Nut, and absolute silence from the rest of the world. "'Oh, no,' he thought. "'Really, no. "'It must be more than, what, a hundred and fifty yards to that goal? "'And those things fly like a bucket. "'There is no way that he could—' "'A distant pock broke the breathless silence, which healed itself instantly.' Trev peered over a shoulder as the sixty-foot goalpost gave up its battle with termites, rot, weather, gravity and nut, and fell into its own base in a cloud of dust. He was so astonished that he hardly noticed Juliet standing up next to him. In fact, Juliet's rising from beneath the cart passed relatively unnoticed by all, except an art student who was almost blinded by the light at the spectacle, and many years later painted the picture known as Beauty Arising from the Peas Pudding Cart, attended by cherubs carrying hot dogs and pies. It was widely regarded as a masterpiece, although no one could ever work out exactly what the hell it was all about. But it was beautiful, and so it was true. "'Is that a kind of like sign?' said Juliet, who believed in such things. At that moment, Trev believed in pointing a finger towards the other side of the street and shouting, "'He went that way!' and then hauling Juliet upright and butting Nut in the stomach. "'Let's go!' he added. He couldn't do anything about Glenda, but that would not matter. While he held Juliet's hand, Glenda would follow him like a homing vulture. People were trying to run towards the hidden goal. Others were making for the apparent location of the long-distance scorer. Trev pointed in a random direction and yelled, "'He went down there! Big man with a black hat!' Confusion always helped when it wasn't yours. When it was time for a hue and cry, make sure who was Hugh. They halted a few alleys away. There was still a commotion far off, but a city crowd is easier to get lost in than a forest. "'Look, perhaps I should go back and apologise. Nut began. "'I could make a new pole quite easily.' "'I hate to tell you this, Gobbo.' "'But I think you might have upset the kind of people who don't listen to apologies,' said Trev. "'Keep moving, everyone.' "'Why might they be upset?' "'Well, Mr. Nutt, first, you are not supposed to score a goal when it is not your game, "'and anyway, you are a watcher, not a player,' said Glenda. "'And second, a shot like that gets right up people's noses. "'You could have killed someone.' 
No, Miss Glenda, I assure you I could not. I deliberately aimed at the pole. So? That doesn't mean you were sure to hit it. Er, uh, I have to say it does, Miss Glenda, he mumbled. How did you do it? You took the pole to bits. They don't grow on trees. You'll get us all into trouble. Why can't he be a player? said Juliet, staring at her reflection in the window. What? said Glenda. Bloody hell, said Trev. With him on the team, you wouldn't need a team. That'd save a lot of trouble, then, said Juliet. So you say, said Glenda. And where would be the fun in that? That wouldn't be football any more. We are being watched, said Nut. I'm sorry to interrupt you. Trev glanced around. The street was busy, but mostly with its own affairs. There's no one interested, Gobbo. We're well away. I can feel it on my skin, Nut insisted. What, through all that wool? said Glenda. He turned round, soulful eyes on her. Yes, he said, and remembered ladyship testing him on that. It had seemed like a game at the time. He glanced up, and a large head drew back quickly from a parapet. There was a very faint smell of bananas. Ah, that one. He was nice. Nut saw him sometimes going hand over hand along the pipes. You ought to get her home, said Treb to Glenda. Glenda shuddered. Not a good idea. Old Stollop will ask her what she saw at the game. Well, she'll tell him, and who she saw. Can't she lie? Not in the way you can, Trev. She's just no good at making stuff up. Look, let's get back to the university. We all work there, and I often go in to catch up. We'll go directly now, and you two go back the long way. We never saw one another, right? And for heaven's sake, don't let him do anything silly. Excuse me, Miss Glenda, said Nut meekly. Yes, what? Which of us were you addressing? I have let you down, said Nut, as they strolled through the post-match crowds. At least, Trev ambled, Nut moved with a strange gait that suggested there was something wrong with his pelvis. Nah, it's fixable, said Trev. Everything is fixable. I'm a fixer, me. What did anybody really see? Just a bloke in dimmer kit. There's thousands of us. Don't worry. Er, uh, how come you're so tough, Gobbo? You spent your life lifting weights or what? You are correct in your surmise, Mr. Trev. Before I was born, I did indeed used to lift weights. I was only a child then, of course. They strolled on, and after a while Trev said, Could you say that again? It's got stuck in my head. Actually, I think part of it's sticking out of my ear. Ah, yes, perhaps I have confused you. There was a time when my mind was full of darkness. Then Brother Oates helped me to the light, and I was born. Oh, religion stuff! But here I am. You asked why I am strong. When I lived in the dark of the forge, I used to lift weights. The tongs at first, and then the little hammer, and then the biggest hammer, and then one day I could lift the anvil. That was a good day. It was a little freedom. Why was it so important to lift the anvil? I was chained to the anvil. They walked on in silence again until Trev, picking each word with care, said, I guess things must be sort of tough in the high country. It is not so bad now, I think. Makes you count your blessings, that sort of thing. The presence of a certain lady, Mr. Trev? Yeah, since you ask. I think about her all the time. I really like her. But she's a dolly. A small group of supporters turned to glance at them, and he lowered his voice to a hiss. She's got brothers with fists the size of a bull's arse. I have read, Mr. Trev, that love laughs at locksmiths. Really? And what does it do when it's been smacked in the face by a bull's arse? The poets are not forthcoming in that respect, Mr. Trev. Besides, 
said Trev. Locksmiths tend to be quiet blokes, you know. Careful and patient and that, like you. I reckon you could get away with a bit of a joke. You must have met girls. I mean, you know oil painting, that's a fact, but they like a posh voice. I bet you had them eaten out of your hand. Well, after you'd washed it, obviously. Nut hesitated. There had been Ladyship, of course, and Miss Heelstether, neither of whom fitted easily into the category of girl. Of course, there were the little sisters, who were certainly young and apparently female, but, it had to be said, looked rather like intelligent chickens, and certainly weren't seen at their best when you watched them feeding. But once again, girls did not seem the right word. "'I have not met many girls,' he volunteered. "'There's Glenda. She's taken a real shine to you. Watch out, though. She'll run your life for you if you let her. It's what she does. She does it to everyone.' "'You two have a history, I think.' said Nut. "'You are a sharp one, aren't you? Quiet and sharp, like a knife. Yeah, I suppose it was a history. I wanted it to be more of a geography, but she kept slapping my hand.' Trev paused to search for any flicker in Nut's face. "'That was a joke,' he added, without much hope. "'Thank you for telling me, Mr. Trev. I will decipher it later.' Trev sighed. "'But I ain't like that any more. And Juliet, well, I'd crawl a mile over broken glass just to hold her hand. No funny business.' "'Writing a poem is often the way to the intended's heart,' said Nut. Trev brightened. "'Ah, I'm good with words. If I wrote her a letter, you could give it to her, right? If I write it on posh paper, something like, oh, let's see, I think you're really fit. How about a date? No hanky-panky. Promise. Love, Trev. How's that sound?' "'The soul of it is pure and noble, Mr. Trev, but uh, if I could assist in some way... "'It needs longer words, right? And more sort of curly language?' said Trev. But Nut was not paying attention. "'Sounds lovely to me,' said a voice above Trev's head. "'Who do you know what can read, smart boy?' There was this to be said about the Stollop brothers. They weren't Andy. It was, in the great scheme of things, not a huge difference when you couldn't see for blood, but, in short, Stollops knew that force had always worked, and so had never bothered to try anything else.' whereas Andy was a stone-cold psychopath who had a following only because it was safer than being in front of him. He could be quite charming when the frantically oscillating mood swing took him. That was the best time to run. As for the Stollops, it would not take long for a researcher to realise that Juliet was the brains of the family outfit. One advantage from Trev's viewpoint was that they thought they were clever, because no one had ever told them otherwise. "'Ha! Mr. So-called Trev!' said Billy Stollop, prodding Trev with a finger like a hippopotamus sausage. "'You full of smarts! You tell us who broke the goal, right?' "'I was in the shove, Billy. Didn't see a thing.' "'He gonna play for the dimmers?' Billy persisted. "'Billy, not even your dad at his best could throw the ball half as far as everyone is saying. You know it, right? You couldn't do it. I'm hearing that the angel's post just fell apart and someone made up a story. Would I lie to you, Billy?' Trev could make up lies that were very nearly truths. "'Yeah, cos you're a dimmer.' "'All right, you got me. I'll come clean,' said Trev, holding out his hands. "'Respect and all that, Billy. It was Nut here that threw the ball. That's my last offer.' "'I ought to smack your head off for that,' said Billy, sneering at Nut. "'That kid don't look like he could even lift the ball.' And then a voice behind Trev said, "'Why, Billy, have they let you out without your collar on?' Nut heard Trev mutter, "'Oh, God, and I was doing so well,' under his breath. And then his friends turned and said, "'It's a free street, Andy. No, I'm in passing the time, eh?' 
The dollies killed your old man, Trev. Ain't you got no shame? The rest of the massive posse was standing behind Andy, their expressions a mix of defiance and the realisation that, once again, they were going to be dragged into something. They were out in the main streets now. The watch was not inclined to get involved in alley scuffles, but out in the open they had to do something in case the taxpayers complained. And since tired coppers didn't like having to do something, they did it good and hard, so with any luck they wouldn't have to do it again any time soon. "'What do you know about all this they're saying about a dimmer man and a dolly tart holding hands in the shove?' Andy demanded. He put a heavy hand on Trev's shoulder. "'Come on! You're smart! You always know everything before anyone else!' "'Tart!' That was Billy. It was a long way from his ears to his brain. "'There's not a girl in Dolly Sisters who'd look at you, poxy lot!' "'Ah, so that's where we got it from,' said Carter the Farter. This struck Nut as inflammatory in the circumstances. Perhaps, he thought, the ritual is that childish insults shall be exchanged until both sides feel fully justified in attacking, just as Dr. von Mausberger noted in Ritual Aggression in Pubescent Rats. But Andy had fished his short cutlass out of his shirt. It was a nasty little weapon, alien to the true spirit of Foot the Ball, which generally smiled indulgently on things that bruised, scared, fractured, and... Okay, worst case, heat of the moment and so on, blinded. But you'd got another eye, right? And now you had solid proof that you were a hard man, especially if you got one of those scars that run across the eye and down the cheek. Get a black eye patch and you would never have to wait to be served at a bar ever again. But then came Andy, who had issues. And once you had someone like Andy around you, you got other Andys around too, and every kid who might otherwise have gone to a match with a pair of brass knuckles for bravado noticeably clanked when he walked and needed to be helped up if he fell over. Now weapons were being loosened here too. "'Careful now, everyone,' Trev cautioned, stepping back and waving his empty hands in a conciliatory way. "'This is a busy street, OK. "'If the old Sam catch you fighting, they'll be down on you with big, big truncheons, "'and they'll beat you until you onk your breakfast. "'Cause for why? "'Cause they hate you. "'Cause you're making paperwork for them and keeping them out of the donut shop.' "'He stepped back a little further. "'And then, on account of you damaging their weapons with your heads, "'they'll run you down to Tantley for a nice night in the tank. "'Been there?' Was it so much fun you want to go back again? He noted with satisfaction the looks of dismayed recollection on the faces of all except Nut, who couldn't have any idea, and Andy, who was brother to the tank. But even Andy was not inclined to go up against the Sam. Kill just one of them, and Veterinary would give you one chance to see if you could stand on air. They relaxed a little, but not too much. All it took in these sphincter-taught circumstances was one idiot. As it happened, one very clever person was able to do the job when Nut turned to Algernon, the youngest Stollop, and said cheerfully, "'Do you know, sir, that your situation here is very similar to that described by von Mausberger in his treatise on his experiment with rats?' At this point, Algernon, after one second of what passed for Algernon as thought, whacked him hard with his club. Algernon was a big boy. Trev managed to grab his friend before he hit the cobbles. The club had hit Nut square in the chest and torn the ancient sweater open. Blood was soaking through the stitches. "'What did you have to go and hit him for, you bloody fool?' Trev said to Algernon, agreed even by his brothers to be as thick as elephant soup. "'He wasn't doing a thing. What was that all about, eh? 
He sprang to his feet, and before Algernon could move, Trev had ripped his own shirt off and was ministering to Nut, trying to staunch the wound. He came back up again after half a minute and flung the sodden shirt at Algernon. "'There's no heartbeat, you moron! What did he ever do to you?' Even Andy was frozen. No one had ever seen Trev like it. Not old Trev. Even the dollies knew Trev was smart. Trev was slick. Trev wasn't the sort to commit suicide by yelling at a bunch of men who were already tensed for a fight. The luckless Algernon, with Trev's rage baking his face, managed, "'But, like, he's a dimmer. "'Who are you? You're a bloody fool, that's what you are!' screamed Trev. He rounded on the others, finger shaking. "'Who are you? Who are you? Nothing! You're rubbish! You're all shite!' He jabbed the finger at Nut. "'And him? He made stuff! He knew things!' and he'd never seen a game before today. He was only wearing a strip to fit in. Don't you worry, Trev, mate, Andy hissed and raised his cutlass menacingly. There's gonna be a bloody war about this. But Trev was suddenly in his face like a wasp. You what? You are mental. You just don't get it, do you? I can see helmets, Andy, said Jumbo urgently. Me? What did I do? As much as the stupid stollops, dimmers and dollies, I hope the god shit thin shit on both of you. They're getting really close, Andy. The stollop boys, who were not altogether dumb, were already leaving. People in football strip were crisscrossing the city. The watch couldn't chase everyone. But, well, belting some bloke who then bled a lot and stopped breathing, well, that was tantamount to murder, and the old Sam could develop quite a turn of speed in those circumstances. Andy shook a furious finger at Trev. It's a hard life in the shove when you're a dumb chuff with no mates. This ain't the shove. Better wake up, kid. It's all shove. The posse left at speed, although Jumbo turned for a moment to mouth sorry. They weren't the only ones hurrying off. The street people were all for a free cabaret, but this one might have associated difficulties. For example, the asking of dangerous metaphysical questions such as, did you see anything, and similar. It was all very well for the watch to say, the innocent have nothing to fear, but what was that all about? Who cared about the innocent and their problems when the watch were on their way? Trev knelt by the cooling body of the late nut. And now, for the first time in a minute, it seemed to Trev, he started to breathe again. He had stopped when he had raged at Andy, because if you talked like that to Andy, you were dead anyway, so why waste your breath? There were things you had to do, weren't there? Weren't you supposed to keep banging on the chest to, like, show the broken heart how to beat again? But he didn't know how, and you didn't need much smarts to know that it was not a good idea to try to learn with the watch on its way. It would not give a good first impression. That was why, when two watchmen turned up at speed, Trev was walking unsteadily towards them with Nut in his arms. He was relieved to see that in charge was Constable Haddock. At least he was one of the ones who asked questions first. Behind him, and eclipsing most of the scenery, was Troll Officer Blue John, who could clear a whole street just by walking down the centre of it. "'Can you help me to get him to Lady Sybil, Mr Haddock? He's very heavy,' said Trev. Constable Haddock pulled the sodden shirt aside and made a sad little clicking sound. With experience comes familiarity. Morgue's closer, lad. No! Haddock nodded. You're Dave Lightly's son, ain't you? I don't have to tell you. No, cos I'm right, said Constable Haddock evenly. OK, Trev, 
Blue John Ear will take this man, who I expect you have never seen before in your life, and we'll both run to keep up. There was a decent thunderstorm the night before last. He might be lucky, and so might you. I never did it. Course not. And now, let's see who's fastest at running, shall we? The hospital first. I want to stay with him, said Trev, as Blue John's huge hand gently cradled Nut. No, lad, said Haddock. You stay with me. It didn't stop with Constable Haddock. It never did. Everyone called him Kipper, and his calm, unspoken message that since we're all in this together, why make it hard for one another often worked, but soon or later you'd be handed over to a senior copper who manufactured hard in a little room with another copper at the door, and this one had been working double shifts by the look of her. "'I'm Sergeant Angwer, sir, and I hope you are not in trouble.' She opened a notebook and smoothed down the page. "'Shall we go through the motions?' You told Constable Haddock that you saw a fight going on, and when you got there all the big boys had run away, and, amazingly, you found your workmate, Mr. Nuts, bleeding to death. Well, I bet I can name all the big boys, every last one of them. I wonder why can't you? And what, Trevor Likely, is this about? She flicked a black-and-white enamel token across the table, and by luck or judgment its pin stuck in the wood a few inches from Trev's hand. The unofficial motto of the Lady Sybil Free Hospital was Not Everybody Dies. It was true that, subsequent to the founding of the Lady Sybil, the chances of death from at least some causes in the city were quite amazingly reduced. Its surgeons were even known to wash their hands before operating, as well as after. But moving through its white corridors now was a figure who knew from personal experience that the unofficial motto was, in reality, entirely mistaken. Death stood by the well-scrubbed slab and looked down. "'Mr. Nutt, well, this is a surprise,' said Death, reaching into his robe. "'Let me see what I have here.' "'You know,' he said, "'I used to wonder why people scrabbled so. After all, compared with the length of infinity, people do not live any time at all. Even you, Mr. Nutt.' although I can see that scrabbling would work a little magic in your case. I can't see you, said Nut. Just as well, said Death. You will not remember me, in any case, later on. I'm dying then, said Nut. Yes, dying and then again living. He fished out a lifetimer from his robe and watched as the sand fell upwards. See you later, Mr. Nut. I fear that you will have an interesting life. A dolly favour on a good dimmer boy. God's bless my soul. I say, what can this be about? And do you know what? I will find out. It's all a matter of shoving. Trev said nothing. He was out of options. Besides, he had seen the sergeant before, and she always seemed to be looking at his throat. Constable Haddock tells me the Igor's on duty down at the Lady Sybil. I hope he's got a heart in his vats that'll fit your friend. I really do, she said. But it'll still be a murder case, even if he comes walking in here tomorrow. Lord Vetinari's rules. If it takes an Igor to bring you back, you were dead. Briefly dead, it's true, which is why the murderer will be briefly hanged. A quarter of a second usually does it. I didn't touch him. I know. But you have to keep solid with your mates, right? Jumbo, and of course Carter, and 
Oh, yes, Andy, your mates who aren't here. Look, you are not under arrest. Yet. You are helping the watch with their inquiries. That means you can use the privy if you're feeling brave. If you're feeling suicidal, use the canteen. But if you try to run off, I will hunt you down. She sniffed and added, like a dog. Understand? Can't I go and see how Nut is getting on? No. Kipper's still down there now. That's Constable Haddock to you. Everyone calls him Kipper. Maybe, but not when it's you talking to me. The sergeant twirled the favour around on the table in an absent-minded way. Has Mr. Nutt got any next of kin? That means relatives. I know what it means. He talks about people in Uberwald. That's all I know. Trev lied instinctively. Saying that someone had spent his youth chained to an anvil was not going to help here. He gets on all right with the other guys in the vats. How come he's in there? We never ask. There's usually some bad story. Anyone ever ask you? He stared at her. That was coppers for you. They came over all friendly, and just when you dropped your guard, they stuck a pickaxe in your brain. Was that an official copper question, or were you just being nosy? Coppers are never nosy, Mr. Likely. However, sometimes we ask tangential questions. So it wasn't official? Not really. Then shove it where the sun does not shine. Sergeant Angua smiled a copper's smile. You've got no card in your hand that you dare play, and you come out with something like that. From Andy, yes, I'd expect it, but Kipper says you're smart. How smart does someone have to be to be as stupid as you? There was a tentative knock at the door, and then a watchman put his head around it. Someone was shouting in the background in a large, authoritative voice. I mean, you deal with this sort of thing all the time, don't you? For heaven's sake, it's not that hard. Yes, Nobby. We've got a bit of a situation, Sarge. That stiff that went to Lady Sibyl, Dr. Lawn's here, and he says the man's got up and gone home. Did they get an Igor to look at him? Yeah, sort of. Eh? The watchman was elbowed out of the way by an expansive man in a long green rubber robe who was clearly trying to balance angry and friendly at the same time. He was tailed by Constable Haddock, who was clearly trying to mollify him and definitely failing. Look, we try to help, all right, said Dr. Lorne. You people say you've got a murder case, and I'll pull old Igor off his slab and hang the overtime. But you tell Sam Vimes for me that I'd like him to send his boys down when they're not busy for a bit of first aid tuition, to wit, the difference between dead and sleeping. It's a fine line sometimes, but it's generally possible to spot the clues. The profession has always tended to consider walking about to be among the more reliable, although in this city we've learned to look on that as just a very good start. But when we pulled back the sheet, he sat up and asked Igor if he had a sandwich, which is generally conclusive. Apart from a fever, he was fine. Strong heartbeat, which suggests he's got one. Not a scratch on him but he could certainly do with a good dinner. He must have been hungry because he ate the sandwich Igor made for him. On the subject of dinners, frankly, I could do with mine. You let him go? said Sergeant Angua, horrified. Of course. I can't keep a man in hospital for being inconveniently alive. She turned to Constable Haddock. And you let him go, Kipper? It looked like a case of doctor's orders, Sarge, said Haddock, giving Trev a wretched look. 
He was covered in blood. He was really messed up, Trev exploded. A prank, then, Angua tried. I'd have sworn there wasn't an heartbeat, Sergeant, Haddock volunteered. Maybe he's one of those monks from the hub that do the Ocus Pocus stuff. Then someone has been wasting watch time, said Angua, glaring at Trev. He spotted that one for the desperate throw it was. What would be in it for me, he said. Do you think I want to be here? Constable Haddock cleared his throat. It's match night, Sarge. The desk is even, and there are supporters roaming around all over the place, and someone's been feeding them a lot of rumours. We're stretched, that's all I'm saying. We've had a couple of big shouts already, and he did walk away after all. Not a problem for me, said the doctor. Came in horizontal, went out upright. It's the preferred way. But I've got to get back, Sergeant. We're going to have a busy night, too. The sergeant looked for someone to shout at, and there was Trev. You! Trev, likely. This one's down to you. Go and find your chum. And if there's any more trouble, there'll be... Trouble. Is that clear? Twice, Sarge. He couldn't resist it. He just couldn't. Not even with the cold sweat rolling down his spine. But he felt light. Uplifted. Released. But some people just can't respect an epiphany when you're having one. It's not a cop skill. It's sergeant to you, likely. Here. Trev managed to catch the favour as it was skimmed across the room. Thanks, Sarge. Get out. He got out, and was half expecting the shadowy shape that stepped up to him when he was clear of the building. There was a faint odour in the grey air. Well, at least it wasn't Andy. He could do without Andy right now. Yes, Carter, he said to Fogg. How did you know it was me? Trev sighed. I guessed. He started to walk fast. And you'll want to know what you said. Don't worry, it's sorted. Sorted? How? Carter, always a bit overweight, had to scurry to keep up. Not going to tell you. Oh, the joy of the moment. But can I tell him we're in the clear? It's all sorted, done and dusted. I blew it out. It's fixed. All gone away. It never happened. Are you sure? said Carter. He was pretty busted up. Hey, what can I tell you? Trev flung out his arms and twirled a pirouette. I'm Trev Lightly. Well, that's firm then. Hey, I bet Andy'll let you back in the posse now. That'd be great, eh? Do you know what Nut thought the posse was called, Carter? No, what? Trev told him. Well, that's... Carter began, but Trev interrupted. It's funny, Carter. It's funny and sort of sad and hopeless. It really is. Trev stopped walking so abruptly that Carter collided with him. And here's a tip. Carter the farter isn't going to take you anywhere, and that goes for the fartmeister too. Trust me. But everybody calls me Carter the farter, the fartmeister wailed. Punch the next one who does. See a doctor. Cut down on carbohydrates. Keep out of confined spaces. Use aftershave, said Trev, speeding up again. Where are you going, Trev? I'm getting out of the shove, Trev called over his shoulder. Carter looked around desperately. What shove? Haven't you heard? It's all shove. Trev wondered if he glowed as he trotted through the fog. Things were going to be different. As soon as Smeems got in, he'd go and see him about a better job or something. A figure appeared out of the mist ahead of him. This was something of an achievement, since the figure was a head shorter than him. Mr. Likely, it said. Who's asking? said Trev, and added, What's asking? The figure sighed. I understand that you are a friend of the gentleman recently admitted to the hospital. 
it said. What's that to you? Quite a lot, said the figure. May I ask if you know very much about the gentleman? I don't have to talk to you, said Trev. Everything's been fixed, OK? Would that this was the case, said the figure. I have to talk to you. My name is Igor. You know, I had a feeling about that. Are you the one who made the sandwich for nut? asked Trev. Yes. Tuna, spaghetti and jam, with sprinkles. My signature death. Do you know anything about his background? Not a thing, mister. Really? Look, in the vats you stir up tallow, not the past, OK? You just don't, right? I know he's had some bad times, and that's all I'm telling you. I thought so, said Igor. I believe he comes from Uberwald. Some strange and dangerous things come from Uberwald. This might sound a stupid question, but do you come from Uberwald by any chance? said Trev. Since you ask, yes, said Igor. Trev hesitated. You saw Igor's around occasionally. The only thing most people knew was that they could stitch you up even better than the watch, and did strange things in cellars, and only tended to come out much when there were thunderstorms. I think your friend may be very dangerous, said Igor. Trev tried to picture Nut as dangerous. It was quite hard until you remembered a throw that knocked down a whole goalpost half a street away. He wished he didn't. Why should I listen to you? How do I know you are not dangerous? he said. Oh, I am, said Igor. Believe me, and Uberwald contains things that I would not want to meet. I am not going to listen to you, said Trev, and you are pretty hard to understand in any case. Is he subject to strange moods? Igor ploughed on. Does he get into a rage? Do you know anything about his eating habits? Yeah, he likes apple pies, said Trev. What are you on about? I can see you are great friends, said Igor. I am sorry that I have trespassed on your time. Trespassed, hanging in the air, considerably added to the water drops hanging in the fog. I will give you some advice. When you need me, just scream. I regret that you will find it very easy to scream. The figure turned and instantly vanished into the mist. And eagles moved about oddly, Trev remembered, and you never saw one at a football game. He noticed that last thought go past. What did he try to tell himself? That someone who did not watch football was not a real person? He couldn't think of a proper answer. He was amazed that he even asked the question. Things were changing. Glenda arrived in the night's kitchen with Juliet sworn to silence, and beneficently gave Mildred and Mrs. Hedges the rest of the night off. That suited them both very well, as it always does, and a little favour had been done there that she could call upon when necessary. She took her coat off and rolled up her sleeves. She felt at home in the night's kitchen, in charge, in control. Behind black iron ranges she could defy the world. "'All right,' she said to the subdued Juliet. We weren't there today. Today did not happen. You were here helping me clean the ovens. I'll see you get some overtime so your dad won't suspect. OK? Have you got that? Yes, Glenda. And while we're here, we'll make a start on the pies for tomorrow night. It'll be nice to get ahead of ourselves, right? Juliet said nothing. Say yes, Glenda, Glenda prompted. Yes, Glenda. Go and chop some pork, then. Being busy takes your mind off things. That's what I always say. "'Yes, Glenda, that's what you always say,' said Juliet. 
An inflection caught Glenda's ear and worried her a little. Do I always say that? When? Every day when you come in and put your apron on, Glenda. Mother used to say that, said Glenda, and tried to shake the thought out of her head. And she was right, of course. Hard work never hurt anybody. And she tried to unthink the treacherous thought, except her. Pies, she thought. You can rely on pies. Pies don't give you grief. I think that Trev likes me, Juliet muttered. He don't give me funny looks like the other boys. He looks like a little puppy. You want to watch out for that look, my girl. I think I love him, Glendy. Wild boar, thought Glenda, and apricots. There's some left in the cool room. And we've got mutton pies with a choice of tracklements, always popular. So, pork pies, I think, and there's some decent oysters in the pump room, so they'll do for the wet pie. I'll do sea pie, and the anchovies look good, so there's always room for a stargazy or two, even though I feel sorry for the little fishes, but right now I'll bake some blind pastries so that... What did you say? I love him. You can't. He saved my life. That's no basis for a relationship. A polite thank you would have sufficed. I've got a feeling about him. That's just silly. Well, silly is not bad, is it? Now you listen to me, young... Oh, hello, Mr. Ottomie. It is in the way of the Ottomies all around the worlds to look as if they have been built out of the worst parts of two men and to be annoyingly hushen-footed on thick red rubber soles, all the better to peep and pry. And they always assume that a free cup of tea is theirs by right. What a day, miss, what a day! Were you at the match? he inquired, glancing from Glenda to Juliet. Been cleaning the ovens, said Glenda briskly. Yeah, today didn't happen, Juliet added and giggled. Glenda hated giggling. Ottomie looked around slowly and without embarrassment, noting the absence of dirt, discarded gloves, cloths. And we've only just finished getting everything all neat and tidy, Glenda snarled. Would you like a cup of tea, Mr. Ottomie? Then you can tell us all about the game. It has been said that crowds are stupid, but mostly they are simply confused, since, as an eyewitness, the average person is as reliable as a meringue life-jacket. It became obvious, as Ottomie went on, that nobody had any clear idea about anything other than that some bloke threw a goal from halfway down the street, and even then only maybe. But funny thing, Ottomie went on, as Glenda metaphorically let out a breath, while we was in the shove, I could have sworn I saw your lovely assistant here chatting to a lad in a dimmer strip. No law against that, Glenda said. Anyway, she was here, cleaning the ovens. It was clumsy, but she hated people like him, who lived for the exercise of third-hand authority and loved every little bit of power they could grab. He'd seen more than he'd told her, that was certain, and wanted her to wriggle, and out of the corner of her mind she could feel him looking at their coats, their wet coats. "'I thought you didn't go to the football, Mr. Ottomie. "'Ah, well, there you have it. "'The pointies wanted to go and watch a game, "'and me and Mr. Nobbs had to go with them "'in case they got breathed on by ordinary people. "'Blimey, you wouldn't believe it. "'Tutting and complaining and taking notes like they owned the street. "'They're up to something, you mark my words.' "'Glenda didn't like the word pointies, "'although it was a good description. "'Coming from Ottomie, though, "'it was an invitation to greasy conspiracy.' But however you baked it, wizards were knobs, people who mattered, the movers and the shakers, and when people like that got interested in the doings of people who by definition did not matter, 
little people were about to be shaken and shook. Vetinari doesn't like football, she said. Well, of course, they're all in it together, said Otomy, tapping his nose. This caused a small lump of dried matter to shoot from his other nostril into his tea. Glenda had a brief struggle with her conscience of whether to point this out, but won. "'I thought you should know this, on account of how people up in the sisters look up to you,' said Otomy. "'I remember your mum. She was a saint, that woman. Always had a helping hand for everyone.' "'Yes, and didn't they grab?' said Glenda to herself. She was lucky to die with all her fingers. Otomy drained his mug and plonked it on the table with a sigh. "'Can't stand around here all day, eh?' "'Yes, I'm sure you've got lots of other places to stand.' Otomy paused at the entrance arch and turned to grin at Juliet. "'A girl, the spitting image of you, I'd swear it, with a dimmer boy, amazing. You must have one of those double gangers. Well, it'll have to remain a mystery, as the man said when he found something that would have to remain a mystery. Toodaloo!' He stopped dead rather than walk into the silvery knife that Glenda was holding in a not-totally-threatening way quite close to his throat. She had the satisfaction of seeing his Adam's apple pop back up and down again like a sick yo-yo. "'Sorry about that,' she said, lowering it. "'I've always got a knife in my hand these days. We've been doing the pork. Very much like human flesh pork, or so they say.' She put her spare hand across his shoulders and said, "'Probably not a good idea, spreading silly rumours, Mr. Otomy. You know how people can be so funny about that sort of thing?' "'Nice of you to drop by, and if you happen to be going past tomorrow, I'll see that you get a pie. Do excuse us. I have a lot of chopping up to do.' He left at speed. Glenda, her heart pounding, looked at Juliet. Her mouth made a perfect O. "'What? What? I thought you was going to stab him. I just happened to be holding a knife. You are holding a knife. We hold knives. This is a kitchen. Do you think he's going to tell?' "'He doesn't really know anything.' Eight inches,' she thought. "'That's as big as you can make a pie without a dish. "'How many pies could I make out of a weasel like Otomy? "'The big mincer would make it easy. "'Rib cages and skulls must be a problem, though. "'Probably better, on the whole, to stick to pork.' "'But the thought blazed away at the back of her mind, "'never to become action, but unfamiliar, exciting, and oddly liberating. "'What were the wizards doing at the game?' Making notes about what? A puzzle to think about. In the meantime, they were in a world of pies. Juliet could work quite well at repetitive jobs when she put her mind to it, and she had a meticulousness often found in people who were not very clever. Occasionally she sniffed. Not a good thing when you were making a pie filling. She was probably thinking about Trev and pasting him in her beautiful and not very overcrowded head into one of those glittery dreams sold by Bubble and other junk, where all you had to do to be famous was just be yourself. <laughs> While Glenda had always known what she wanted, she worked long, poorly paid hours to get it, and here it was, her own kitchen and power, more or less, over pies. A moment ago you were daydreaming of turning a man into pies. Why are you so angry all the time? What went wrong? I'll tell you what went wrong. When you got there, there was no there there. You wanted to see Quirm from an open carriage while a nice young man drank champagne out of your slipper, but you never did, because they were a funny lot in Quirm, and you couldn't trust the water, 
And how did that champagne thing work, anyway? Didn't it drip out? What would happen if your toe trouble played up again? So you never did. Never will. I never said Trev's a bad lad, she said aloud. Not a gentleman, needs a slap to teach him manners, and he takes life a good deal too easily. But he could make something of himself if he had reason to put his mind to it. Juliet did not seem to be listening, but you never could tell. It's just the football. You're on different sides. It won't work, Glenda finished. Supposing I went and supported the dimmers? A day ago that would have sounded like some kind of sacrilege. Now it just presented a huge problem. For a start, your dad wouldn't speak to you ever again, or your brothers. They don't know much, anyway, except to ask when their grub is going to be ready. Do you know, today was the first time I ever saw the ball up close. And you know what? It weren't worth it. Hey, and they're going to have a fashion show on at Shatter tomorrow. Why don't we go? Never heard of it, Glenda snorted. It's a dwarf store. That sounds right. I can't imagine humans naming anything like that. You'd be hostage to the first misprint. We could go. Might be fun. Juliet waved a tattered copy of Bubble, And the new micromails are going to be really good and soft. And don't chafe, it says here. Plus, all helmets are making a return after too long in... Obs Curie Tea. Where's that? And there's this mat in... A tomorrow. Yes, but we're not the kind of women who go to fashion shows, Jules. You're not. Why am I not? Well, because... Well, I wouldn't know what to wear. Glenda was getting desperate now. That's why you should go to fashion shows, said Juliet smugly. Glenda opened her mouth to snap a reply and thought, It's not about boys and it's not about football. It's safe. All right. I suppose it might be fun. Look, we've done a woman's job this evening. I'll take you home now and do my chores and come back. Your dad might be worrying. He'll be in the pub, said Juliet accurately. Well, he would be worrying if he wasn't, said Glenda. She wanted some time to herself with her feet up. It hadn't just been a long day. It had been a long and deep one as well. She needed some time for things to settle. And we'll take a chair. How about that? They're very expensive. Well, you're only young once. That's what I say. I never heard you say that before. Several troll chairs were waiting outside the university. They were expensive at fivepence for the ride, but the seats in panniers around the carrier's neck were much more comfy than the slats on the buses. Of course, it was posh, and curtains twitched and lips pursed. That was the strange thing about the street. If you were born there, people didn't like it if you started not to fit in. Granny had called it getting ideas above your station. It was letting the side up. She opened Juliet's door for her because the girl always fumbled with the lock and watched it shut. Only then did she open her own front door, which was as patched and peeling as the other one. She'd hardly taken her coat off when there was a hammering on the weather-beaten woodwork. She flung it open to find Mr. Stollop, Juliet's father, one fist still raised and a little cloud of powdered paint flecks settling all around him. "'Heard you come in, Glendy,' he said. "'What's this all about?' His other huge hand rose, holding a crisp, off-white envelope. You didn't see many of these in Dolly Sisters. "'It's called a letter,' said Glenda. The man held it out imploringly, and now she noticed the large letter V on the dreaded government stamp, guaranteed to spread fear and despondency among those with taxes yet to pay. 
it's his lordship writing to me,' said Mr. Stollop in distress. "'Why do you want to go and write to me? I haven't done nothing.' "'Have you thought about opening it?' said Glenda. "'That's generally how we find out what's in letters.' There was another of those imploring looks. In Dolly's sisters, reading and writing was soft indoor work that was best left to the women. Real work required broad backs, strong arms, and calloused hands. Mr. Stollop absolutely fitted the bill. He was captain of the Dollies, and in one match had bitten an ear off three men. She sighed, and took the letter from a hand which, she noticed, was slightly trembling, and slit it open with her thumbnail. "'It says here, Mr. Stollop,' she said, and the man winced. "'Yes, that would be you,' Glenda added. "'Is there anything about taxis or anything?' he said. "'Not that I can see. He writes that I would greatly appreciate your company at a dinner I am proposing to hold at Unseen University at eight o'clock Wednesday evening to discuss the future of the famous game Foot the Ball. I will be pleased to welcome you as the captain of the Dolly Sisters team.' "'Why has he picked on me?' Stollop demanded. "'He says,' said Glenda, "'because you're the captain.' "'Yeah, but why me?' "'Maybe he's invited all the team captains,' Glenda volunteered. "'You could send a lad round with a white scarf and check, couldn't you?' "'Yeah, but supposing it's just me?' said Stollop again, determined to plumb the horror to its depths. Glenda had a bright idea. "'Well, then, Mr. Stollop, it would look like the captain of the Dolly Sisters is the only one important enough to discuss the future of football with the ruler himself.' Stollop didn't square his shoulders because he wore them permanently squared, but with a muscular nudge he managed to achieve the effect of cubed. "'Ha! He's got that one right!' he roared. Glenda sighed inwardly. The man was strong, but his muscles were melting into fat. She knew his knees hurt. She knew he got out of breath rather quickly these days, and in the presence of something he couldn't bully, punch, or kick, Mr. Stollop was entirely at a loss. Down by his sides his hands flexed and unflexed themselves as they tried to do his thinking for him. "'What's this all about?' "'I don't know, Mr. Stollop.' He shifted his weight. "'Oh, uh, would it be about that dimmer boy that got himself hurt today, do you think?' "'Could be anyone,' thought Glenda, as cold dread blossomed. "'It's not as though it doesn't happen every week. "'It doesn't have to be either of them.' "'It will be, of course. "'I know it, but I don't know it. "'Can't possibly know it. "'And if I repeat that long enough, "'it might all never have happened.' "'Got himself hurt,' thought Glenda, in the roar of panic. "'That quite likely means he happened to be standing in the wrong place, "'in the wrong strip, which is tantamount to a self-inflicted wound.' He got himself killed. "'My lads came in and said it was out in the street. That's what they just heard. He got killed. That's what they heard. They didn't see anything. That's right, they didn't see a thing. But they were doing a lot of listening.' That one went over Stollop's head without even bothering to climb. "'And it was a dimmer boy.' "'Yeah,' he said. "'They heard he died, but you know how those dimwell buggers lie. "'Where are your boys now?' For a moment the old man's eyes blazed. "'They're stopping indoors or I'll thrash them. "'You get some nasty gangs out when something like that's been happening.' "'One less now, then,' said Glenda. "'Stollop's face was painted in pigments of misery and dread. "'They're not bad boys, you know, not at heart. "'People pick on them.' "'Yes, down at the watch-house,' she said to herself, "'where people say, that's them, the big ones, I'd know them anywhere.' "'She left him, shaking his head, and ran down the road.' 
The troll would never expect to get a fare up here, and there was no sense in hanging around and getting covered in paint. She might just about be able to catch up with it on its way downtown. After a minute or two, she realised that someone was following her, chasing her in the gloom. If only she'd remembered to bring the knife. She stepped into a patch of deeper shadow, and, as the knife-wielding maniac drew level, stepped out and shouted, Stop following me! Juliet gave a little scream. They've got Triv! she sobbed as Glenda held her. I know they have. Don't be silly, said Glenda. There's fighting all the time after a big match. No sense in getting too worried. So why were you running? said Juliet sharply. And there was no answer to that. The Bledlow nodded him through the staff door with a grunt, and he headed straight away for the vats. A couple of the lads were dribbling in their meticulous and very slow way, but there was no sign of nut until Trev risked his sanity and nasal passages by checking the communal sleeping area, where he found Nut sleeping on his bedroll, clutching his stomach. It was an extremely large stomach. Given the usual neat shape of Nut, it made him look a little like a snake that had swallowed an extremely large goat. The curious face of the Igor and his worried voice came back to him. He looked down beside the bedroll and saw a small piece of pie-crust and some crumbs. It smelled like a very good pie. In fact, he could think of only one person who could ever make a pie quite so beguiling. Whatever it was that had been filling Trev, the invisible illumination that had made him almost dance here from the watch-house drained out through his feet. He headed through the stone corridors to the night kitchen. Any optimism he might have retained was dashed one hope at a time by the trail of pie-crumbs. But the illumination rose again as he saw Juliet, and, oh yes, Glenda, standing in what was left of the night kitchen, which was a mess of torn open cupboards and pieces of pie-crust. "'All Mr. Trevor Likely,' said Glenda, folding her arms. "'Just one question. Who ate all the pies?' The illumination swelled until it filled Trev with a kind of silvery light. It had been three nights since he had slept in an actual bed, and it had not been your normal sort of day. He smiled broadly at nothing at all, and was caught by Juliet as he hit the ground.